Welcome back to season two of Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez-Miranda, yours truly, the author of my what-if year, ex-CEO, sometimes intern, coffee-obsessed mom. Extra Shot is part podcast, part talk show, part games, advice, and whatever else my delightful guests and I can cook up for you. My aim is to bring some hilarity, inspiration, and ultimately a jolt of energy to your day. Because we all need an extra shot of something. What's in your cup? Hello, my extra shot friends. I hope you are doing well today and that you have your eyes open. That's right. I know this is an audio podcast, but today we are talking with the brilliant Bianca Bosker about what it really means to see in relation to art and also walls and everything around you. Bianca Bosker wrote Cork Dork. Cork Dork is a book that if you have met me in the last few years, two, three years, I have probably given you a copy or told you to read. If we've had a glass of wine, I have definitely talked to you about it because it's one of my favorite books. And this is her follow-up. Although it is unrelated, she is experimenting in a totally different world. I interviewed Bianca on Quit Your Day Job, my previous podcast. I had to have her back to talk about her brand new book, Get the Picture. So let me tell you just a bit about Bianca. Bianca Bosker is the author of Get the Picture, the New York Times bestselling author of Cork Dork, and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Best American Travel Writing, and has been recognized with awards from the New York Press Club, Society of Professional Journalists, and more. She lives in New York City. She's completely awesome. And you're probably listening to this on audio, but if you would like to see the images that Bianca is referring to at the end of our interview when we play our fun little game, those are up on YouTube. You can catch them there. I'm also going to put them on Instagram so you can see them. But I'm going to stop talking so you can hear the brilliance that is Bianca Bosker. Bianca, the OG cork dork, now (laughs) art explainer, enthusiast, just everything, artiste extraordinaire. Welcome to, well, your first time on Extra Shot, but welcome back to being interviewed by me on a podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and just thrilled to be back. This is basically, I think, why I started this podcast was so I had a good legitimate reason to reach out to people doing fascinating things and be like, let me ask you all the questions I have about it. And that is what has happened with your amazing book that I just couldn't put down and have been insufferably telling everybody I know that they have to read it. Thank you. I mean, I don't find that insufferable. I find you're doing God's work. So thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) So before we get into the art world, which is what I'm so dying to ask you about, I need to know what you are obsessed with at the moment. Last time we spoke, you gave me a long list of things you were obsessed with. And I want to know, what are you, the a person who is obsessed with obsession, what are you obsessing over right now? Oh, so I would say one recent obsession of mine is jellyfish. Like jellyfish are freaking <laughs> mind-blowing. I just like, I, I've been trying to figure out how I can find a way to dive into the world of jellyfish and write about them, but they're basically immortal. They also wreak havoc on, they've you know been known to capsize ships. I think more people die every year from jellyfish stings than sharks. Like oh they're the force to be reckoned with. And I, I think there's something so magical and unknown about the ocean. You know, everyone's trying to go to space, but 
we really don't understand the ocean. So that's one thing I'm obsessed with. The other thing I'm obsessed with, this was a, another question that came to me circa 2.45 in the morning while I was <laughs> up with my young child is, why do young children hate sleep? So this is another question that's been rolling around in my mind. I don't know, so I'm pulling up. I always have like this, I have a, I think I, I described myself last time we talked as sort of like flypaper. And so there's always just like my brain is just waiting to stick onto things. The biggest cruise ship I read recently, there's like the new biggest cruise ship in the world. Like oh my what God. is going on with that? Seeds, also seeds, apparently, you know, everything from seed sabotage to the seeds going extinct, you know, my, my, brain sticks on a lot of different things, but those are just a small handful. And then of course, art, you know, this, as I'm sure we'll discuss, but this journey of throwing myself into the art world for my new book, Get the Picture, has really ended in a love story, uh, which I didn't know where it would go in the end. But, you know, you'll find me on any given day seeking out art everywhere from galleries to the side of the street. I mean, you do describe in your book this kind of active looking and so I do just <laughs> picture you like in your house, like looking at like a spot on the floor for at least five minutes trying to describe it. Are you are you doing that actively these days? Yeah, I will say that there's, you know, it sounds insane, but in the course of, of working on this book, you know, I worked for galleries. I spent a lot of time painting white things white and communing with walls. And it started because I was working for this gallery and you know they're having me repaint the wall for a new show. And that really started this weird obsession with looking at walls. And so, yeah, there's a lot of time that I spend, you know, I do have other things to do with my time, but at the same time, I do, there are these moments where I catch myself, you know, looking at the way the light is falling at a wall and just trying to figure out like, how would I describe this white, like it's not a white wall, you know, it's, it's, even now I'm looking at it, I'm like, is it, it's not just black, it's gray. It's like, is there some green in there? I mean, there's just so much beauty, I think, to watching how the consistency of light changes over the course of the day and the colors that present themselves in the most unexpected way once you really stop and pay attention. And I think art helped me do that. But it's a weird hobby. It certainly is a weird hobby, you know, just the sort of like staring and trying to to deconstruct the mystery that exists in a wall. I'm sure in New York you fit right in. Like in New York, you could just be staring at something for a long time and nobody's even going to jostle you on the street because people are like, oh, that's, that's, you know, in New York, anything goes. That's always how I feel in New York. As long, I, as, you're was, avo- as, long as you're avoiding eye contact with strangers, it's I think fine. fine. Exactly. I was in your hood, actually, when I was there very, very briefly for less than 24 hours in November. And I walked maybe 30 blocks, and I passed two stores that sell only clothes for dogs. Two stores. <laughs> so if that's not a sign that anything goes in New York, it is. So, okay, before I get deep into my many questions I have after reading the book, this episode is going to air on your pub date for Get the Picture. So not everybody is going to have been as fortunate as I have been to read it. So why don't you give me your spiel? What is this book about? Yeah, so I'd say this book is about the years I spent disowning my normal life as a journalist to sell art at galleries, help artists in their studios as a studio assistant, uh, patrol museums as a security guard, embed myself with collectors, lots more. All of this is part of this journey to really understand why does art matter and how can any of us engage with it more deeply. Also, you know, to discover just how messy the fine art world really is, as you probably know from your own experience working in it. It presents uh, oftentimes a very buttoned up exterior, but underneath there's a lot of weird stuff going on. Fascinating things, 
unethical things, life-changing things, inspiring things, you name it. And so I think this book is sort of part user guide to the hidden logic of this world and also part quest to learn how to live life more beautifully. And I think beauty tends to get a bad rap in the art world. Um, Even beyond the art world, there's this idea that beauty is somehow untrustworthy, unserious, a little, you know, at best a luxury, at worst something something corrupting. Mm. And I came to find that beauty is actually really essential. And I think art, perhaps counterintuitively, is this amazing gateway to living life in a more expansive, more beautiful way, in a way that can involve staring at walls at times. Yeah. And it works. So I'm not going to spoil the book, but I do have to, I need to kind of pull up something. So you are having uh, your own My What If Year, except much, much deeper. And the book is extraordinarily funny and very, very well written. So you kind of start out trying to figure out how you're going to, how you're going to figure out the art world. And everybody is telling you, you can't, you know, you've got gates coming up everywhere. Keep out. We don't want you here. Stay away. And your first experience uh, is working with a man named Jack, whose surname is in the book when people want to read it themselves. And, you know, you have this kind of, I think, mostly extremely hilarious experience working for him and kind of getting under the skin of that real trend-setting gallery, you know, what it's like to work there. So have has has Jack read the book yet? Like, I, I really want to know what he thinks about the book. <laughs> and have you shared this book with all of your art world folks who were so afraid of you coming into their world? Have their fears been founded? Or are they just going to have to read it with the rest of us? <laughs> so yeah, the book is making its way into the world. And it's hard to know, you know, in this early stage, who's read it, who hasn't read it. So I want to back up and first explain that I recognize that the research I did for this book was rather atypical. And I have to say that, you know, at the outset of what became Get the Picture, Art and I were not really on speaking terms. I spent a lot of my adult life really not understanding how to do art. And a lot of times, you know, I would go to galleries and museums, and I really felt like I was at least three master's degrees and a few tattoos away from figuring out what was going on. And, you know, at this point in my life, I will confess that didn't totally bother me. I mean, I was living this really hyper-optimized existence that didn't make time for frivolous things like art or bathroom breaks. Um, I was the sort of person who did a lot of texting from the toilet while listening to podcasts on 2x speed. Uh, Maybe some of your listeners right now can relate. Maybe they're stopping in this moment. They're like, what? (laughs) That's me. (laughs) She see Um, me? Yeah. And I don't know that anything would have changed except I happened to stumble on this collection, you know, this, this painting that my grandmother had done inspired by her time teaching art in a displaced person's camp as a Holocaust survivor. And it really set my brain into this tizzy of, of wondering, you know, whether art, which I'd always considered a luxury, was perhaps more essential than I had assumed. And I was really intrigued by the way that scientists were right there with her and arguing that art was a really fundamental part of our humanity, as necessary, as one person put it, as food or sex. Mm. And this was not a feeling I could relate to, but I started deciding, hey, like, let's try this art thing again, sort of showing up again to galleries, museums, openings. And the art was totally befuddling to me, but the people around it were fascinating. You know, they picked fights with the color blue. They, you know, maxed out credit cards to show these hunks of metal they swore could change the world. And I'd never met a group of people willing to sacrifice so much for something of so little obvious practical value. 
And yet, as I pass these art fiends, you know, ooing and eyeing over sculptures of like a mutilated chair, let's say, I kept wondering, you know, why? Like, why does art matter? And, you know, can interacting with a few smears of rock on cloth or a painting, as you may call it, the technical term, if you will, you know, can that really transform our existence? And, you know, I decided, like, I, I wanted to know also, like, these people sort of acted like they'd access this trapdoor in their brains that made my hyper-optimized existence feel totally claustrophobic in comparison to their expansive worldview. And so I started to wonder if I could see art and perhaps even the world the way they did and what would change as a result. And so I first started reaching out to people in a more traditional way, which is just say, you know, hey, will you talk to me, right? Can I interview you? Can I ask you what I considered some pretty basic, inoffensive, fundamental questions like, <laughs> why art? Like, how how do you do art? <laughs> like, how does how should I look at this? And I was really taken aback by just how secretive the art world was and just how reticent people were to sit down with me and have these pretty basic conversations. You know, I got threats. I had many closed doors. Eventually, even as people started talking to me, I had people, you know, offering a lot of voluntary constructive criticism about all the things wrong with the way I dressed or the way I spoke or even my overly enthusiastic personality. And I will say that those conversations convinced me that I needed to go deeper. I needed to really figure out what was going on here. Because I also think that it became clear that to understand art, I also had to understand the art world. And at the same time, you know, as a journalist, the more someone tells you to keep away from something, the more determined you become let me in, to let get me in. inside <laughs> and figure out what is going on. And so, yeah. yeah, it was a very, you know, I was really fortunate in the end to find really generous, exceptional people who were willing to open up their doors and their rooms and their studios to me and my notebook and my tape recorder to really explain what they considered art's role in our lives. I, I you know, I just felt, at, especially after doing Corp Dork, it, it really convinced me. It's like, it's one thing to hear someone explain to you how to sell a painting. It's another thing to, you know, be negotiating with millionaires during Art Basel and selling photos from the back of an Uber while people around you home fuck lines of cocaine, which is <laughs> what I ended up doing. You know, those are very different experiences and windows onto art's role in our life. And how we can make it a part of our lives and also why we should even bother to do so. The type of writing that you do, and particularly your book-length projects, Cork Dork and now Get the Picture, requires this complete immersion, right? So you are not a dispassionate journalist. You were in there painting that wall white hundreds of times. You were posing. You were selling the art. You know, you, you're very invested. And you really gave everything for these jobs that you were doing. I mean, the way that you describe it, you were out night after night after night. You barely saw your husband. You know, you were 100% in it. So I have two questions around that. The first is, you know, at least in the way it's written, you kind of take us on a journey that feels like you didn't know where it was going to end when it started. Is that the case? And if so, that kind of investment upfront, not knowing where it's going to go, you know, what does that feel like for you? And the second question I have is, you have a kid now, which you didn't before this happened. Do you right. think you could do this again now that you have a child? Yeah, uh, they're great questions. So I would say, first of all, you know, I don't know where the journey is going to go for so many different reasons. I mean, first of all, I think for any 
piece I write as a journalist, I believe in keeping an open mind. I mean, what's the point of doing the research if you know where it's going to end, right? I think the point is the projects I do, they start with questions. They also start from this moment where I feel like I've experienced something seismic, some sort of seismic disruption in my soul where I've realized, holy crap, like the world doesn't, you know, it's like how I describe it. I think that a lot of the articles and books that I write begin from this seismic moment I have in my soul where I suddenly realize, holy crap, maybe I've thought about this fundamental thing all wrong. Mm. And so, you know, it's nonfiction. Like, I I don't know where it's going to end. I don't know who I'm going to meet. I don't know what I'm going to find or where things will lead. And I think that the result is, unfortunately, I think not the most efficient research process, but I do think it makes for a much more honest, nuanced, and hopefully richer one for the reader, ultimately. I do not want to read your efficient version of the art world. <laughs> I mean it for what you gave us. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and I think, you know, as you see from the book, it's like one experience shapes you and leads you to the net. You know, it's like, if you read the book, you'll see that like after working with Jack, it left me incredibly hungry to get up close and personal with the process of making an artwork to sort of clear away all the other things, all the context, all the conversation, and really understand fundamentally, why did you pick this blue, right? Mm-hmm. Why did you put this cloud here? You know, or when I met Mandy Allfire, performance artist who you know, sat on my face, right? It's like that I certainly did not see coming. Literally, she literally off. sits on her face. Yes, right. This is not metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that kicked off all these questions that honestly, I kind of would rather not have had to deal with, but are, are, I think are really critical. What is art, right? How do we define it? Where does art end and stuff begin? Is there a boundary there? So yeah, I think that there's just a kind of openness that is really required. And I'm someone who really does all the reporting, the experiencing before I even, you know, I have to do a lot before I can get to the point where I even am thinking about putting pen to paper. Mm, okay. And I will say, yeah, you know, it's interesting having, I now have a nearly two-year-old son and I don't know how I would have done this book with a nearly two-year-old son. I mean, you know, there was so much, I really was just at people's beck and call. I was just available. You know, it became clear very quickly that to really understand how this world works, I had to just put myself underfoot and and be available and be be ready to stay at the gallery until midnight spackling walls if that's what it took. And I think it's a world where there are not neat and tidy boundaries between business and pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so that also, it required a sort of just offering myself up to it. So yeah, I do think about that now where I'm like, huh, you know, I'm not in, in the same... You know, it's it's just, it's an interesting reflection. And I don't know what that means for the future, but it's certainly, I had had that similar conversation with myself, which is sort of say, huh, this is a, a, a hard project, I think, to do for me at this moment, if I had to start over in this very moment doing it mm. again. I think it's interesting in general to think about where the space in the art world is for, I will say parents, but, you know, I think we all know a lot of the times it's moms. And, you know, my art, internship boss, who I still do some work with, went to Hong Kong last week to see a sculpture for the day. Like not even the day. I don't even think he stayed a night there. You know, that's something that would be so difficult for me to do to pick up and leave my kids, even though they're 12 now and they like don't need me as much, but they really grumble when I go away. So, and I don't think I'll say, I I, I think, I don't know, but I just say, I don't think it's only 
parents either, or or even people of a certain age. You know, I think that, you know, I was focused, I I very quickly became interested in the world of up and coming artists, Mm -hmm. the art world term for them as emerging artists, right? A lot of artists that you may not have heard of yet, and perhaps you never will. But to me, these are people who are trying to elbow their way into art history. Really, it's the least covered, I think, part of the art world and the highest stakes. You know, these are people who selling a painting can be the difference between keeping their apartment or their studio or not, right? I mean, these are, this is not just a question of how many zeros do we add to a price tag. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was frustrating oftentimes to hear about what they're up against because many of these artists are working two, three, four. I mean, any, a plethora of jobs in addition to doing the work they want to be doing, which is working on their artwork. And at the same time that they're expected to juggle these jobs and make phenomenal artwork, they're also expected to schmooze, to go up, just to go to openings, to hang out, just to hang out for hours on end, you know, and it's like, there are only 24 hours in a day, right? You know, it's, you, at some point you're making a choice after you finish your nine to five, are you going to go home and work on your artwork? Are you going to go to the opening? Are you going to, you know, just meander it and hope that you maybe get a chance to say a few words to the gallerist who maybe takes the time to look up your artwork, who maybe follows up with a studio visit. I mean, it's, it's tough. It's a, it's a, it's a weird system in a lot of ways. Well, and you cover, you know, there's so many extremes in the art world and you really cover those really effectively. I think you've got the artist. One, one bit that I found incredibly fascinating was uh, you worked with an artist, Julie Curtis, as her studio assistant for a while. And you were explaining in probably the clearest way I've ever seen it explained what it actually means for an artist to have their work begin to take huge amounts of money at auction, which seems like that would be incredibly beneficial to someone who has struggled to keep the lights on and pay the bills when actually most of them, they won't ever see that money. And in some cases, it can be a detriment to their career and their development. So it's this weird world with these unbelievably wealthy people who are playing in the market at these super high levels and in some cases manipulating the market. And then the people who are trying to make the art who are often just barely getting by. Right. Totally. Yeah. No. It's a it's a world, as, as someone put it, it's the, you know, the art world sort of is the world that we live in, but taken to the extreme. And so I think that it has Good. really so many lessons for us, no matter what industry that we're in. And it's it's just everything is heightened for better and for worse. So I want to play a little game with you. Bianca, if that's okay. Ready? I love games. Because the of all of the things that I have been thinking about since I read your book, Mandy Allfire and this question of what gets to be defined as art is like top of mind all the time. And so Mandy is pers- the artist who sits on your face in this gallery that you go to. If you look her up on Instagram, which I have done, and then like immediately felt like I had done something X-rated, you know, it's very graphic, but she is a performance artist and that is how she defines herself. And so- And I should say, at, it's at Thug Life Thick Baby. If anyone wants to look it up for themselves, it's at Thug Life Thick Baby. Yeah, I think Thick has two Cs as well, right? It's like Thick, T-H-I-C-C. Anyway. Something like that. C-C-C-K, yeah. You could go down this question forever. So there is that bit. And then, as you mentioned already on this podcast, you have learned to look at things and appreciate things like walls, which you might not think are art, but are beautiful in their own way. So I have five images for you that I would like to ask you, is this art? 
and maybe why. Great. And for those of you who are listening on audio, I'm going to describe the images. I'm going to post them up on Insta and with the show notes so you can make these decisions for yourself. Are you ready for Is It Art? I'm ready. Bum, bum, bum. We need a theme song just for this bit. <laughs> okay. This is a... Can you see my screen? I can see it. I can see All right. it. I'm starting out with a softball, okay? Because this piece of work hangs in the Scottish National Gallery just by my house. It's one of the most recognizable Scottish paintings. It is by Henry Rayburn. It is late 18th century painting called The Skating Minister. So, Bianca, is this art? Yeah. This is art. This is art. Yeah, let's call this art. Now, I will say, for those who can't see it, this is... A very it's basically it's a guy who has a black coat on, what looks like a pair of Lululemon black workout pants <laughs> and a black top hat. And he's got his arms crossed. He looks a little like you know, maybe Thomas Jefferson or something, a founding yep. father. He's got lovely, very graceful ankles, and he's skating on this this very sublime background that's just kind of this haze of like a greenish frozen pond of some kind. I assume leading into these gray clouds. Very. It's kind of Scottish weather, as far as I know. It's accurate. (laughs) And I will say that this one, you say it's a softball, and it sort of is, because I think I was really, as I got deeper into these questions of what is art, I was really enthralled to learn that our definition of fine art, quote unquote, what we consider fine art, which, you know, we would would naturally, I think, assume, hey, painting, sculpture, photos begin to be a little questionable, video art, we're like, no, but sure, yeah, they're in the museums, our history departments, like, toss them in. But our definition of fine art is really a relatively recent invention that's mm. only about as old as the cuckoo clock. And it's deeply European, you know, this idea of putting boundaries around some things, some activities, and saying, okay, a painting is art. And then a point pillow, stuff, craft, right? There's this, this delineation that comes only a few hundred years ago of saying that some things are art and some things are craft. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we are shaped much more, I think, than I at least realize. We are shaped by these assumptions that are actually rather arbitrary assumptions, much more than I think we realize. And so paintings, to your point, are seem like an easy definition of art because we live in the shadow of this idea of, okay, fine art means things like painting, sculpture, poetry, et cetera. A mug, craft, you know, stuff. Craft is yeah. sort of a nice word of saying stuff, not art stuff. So, so yes, I think this, uh, this it's, we're going to call this painting, I'm going to call this painting art. Okay. I would buy a mug with this guy on it, actually. Now, number two, what you say uh, early in the book, that one of the questions that you're like never allowed to ask or one of the things you're never allowed to say when you are looking at art is that my my child could do this. So piece right. number two is actually a piece by my child. So Ooh. this is this is a drawing of a famous Pokemon named Pikachu. It is on lined paper made with colored pencil and signed by my daughter, Lola, made on the 28th of October, 2023. So even though my child did this, Bianca, is this art? <laughs> well, we got we got to get Lola's show. So I think that you know it's interesting. As I, I mean, I I excavated every kind of research material that I could get my hand on to try and answer this question. I talked to gallerists. I, you know, read so much art theory, and I was interested actually that one of the Elizabeth Dimon, sorry, oh my gosh, Elizabeth Elizabeth Denny, who was a gallerist that I worked for, 
I remember at one point saying, when kids make quote unquote art, like that's not really art. And I think it was her who said this. Someone, someone said this to me. And, you know, that doesn't really resonate with me. I mean, I think that there's feel again, feels like an arbitrary distinction. And like I was at the other day at a preschool and looked at the wall. And I mean, the way that these children had painted their portraits was incredible. I mean, it was, there was just, there was an attitude. There was a, it really made me think differently about like a tongue. It made me think differently about hair. I mean, there was one person who made their portrait. It looked sort of like a balding clown eating a pill, like pill popping or something. And I was like, wow, like, I don't know who, you know, this you know, Amanda kid is, but she's an artist, right? Like there's something really great. And I think that, you know, like, I, I think that something can certainly be made by a, a kid and be art. You know, I don't think it's, it's sort of crazy to have a cutoff that like it's art up until you turn 18. So um, like I said, let's get Lola a show. All right. This is for sale. Podcast. And I will say there's something here, like, for example, like just for those who can't see it, the hands are different on this Pikachu. There's something really cool. Like one of the hands is like a sort of a zigzaggy, like there's just, there's so much here that you can really engage with and look at. And I, I started to think that art is also not only what the artist is putting forth, but what we as a viewer are bringing to the experience. And I, I started to think that art is really this handshake between, you know, an artist, someone putting something forth and saying, hey, I think this is art. This is art to me. And us as the viewer coming to it and saying, I'm going to pick up where you left off and think, yes, this is art. Now, I do think there's moments also where we can look at everyday things with an art eye and watch them transform and transform us in that moment, hence staring at white walls. But we can get to more to that. So what did gallerists get? 50% commission? If you sell Lola's piece, I'll give you 50% of that. Okay. <laughs> okay, so for my third one, I had to go with a piece of performance art because... The line between performance art and other things, and in the case of Mandy Allfire, pornography, is also a little bit true, I think, in the case of this next artist, but she's been legitimized by retrospectives and museums around the world. I just went to see the exhibition of her work at the Royal Academy a few weeks ago. And so it's Marina Abramovich. Here she is with Ule. And this ah. is a uh, performance that they did in 1977, which was reenacted in 2010. It is called Imponderabilia. And to describe it for you, two performers are standing completely naked in a doorway, and the public must squeeze through them in order to pass. And I guess they have to choose which way to face. I feel like this is definitely a sideways squeeze through. Abramovich is very, very well known for her boundary-pushing performance art. So... Is this art? Yes, I think this is art. I think this is a really interesting example because I actually write about this example in reference to trying to grapple with what Mandy Allfire is doing. And so for a little context, just for those who don't know, so Mandy Allfire, Amanda Alfieri is her offline name. She has an MFA from Columbia. She has shown at incredibly esteemed arts venues. And for her most, and she does these very immersive performance pieces that can last you know, hours, weeks, years in some cases. And so when I met her, she was in the midst of this ongoing performance piece where she was performing as an ass influencer on Instagram. So essentially she had looked around and was really interested in the ways that women were developing, you know, these massive followings, I mean, millions of followers for posting these sort of 
fetishy photos of different parts of their bodies, hence you know, ass influencers. And she was particularly interested in the ass in our butts. And so she actually began to embody this persona of Mandy Allfire, an ass influencer, and, and really went so far as to just, you know, change her body. I mean, initially it was everything from, you know, doing incredibly aggressive workouts to try and get this thick physique to like, you know, build up her, her body in the way that she saw other people doing on Instagram. And then lately, you know, she's even taken, you know, cosmetic surgery interventions. And for her, this work is an investigation of so many different things. I'm not going to do justice in the moment, but I had met her because she was doing this performance where she had invited her followers to come to a gallery for a live face sitting where she was going to, quote, sit on them until they can't take it anymore. And so this Abramovich piece reminds me a bit of that because there is this sense of the artist putting their naked or nearly naked form in contact with these viewers, these, it's, I don't know if you can even call them viewers at that stage, but these, these people at a gallery mm. and sort of making them engage with it. And, you know, I think that there is, I think this piece is interesting because it raises to me this also question of context. And so in the art world, you know, I had come from this background of, uh, you know, training as a sommelier where I did a lot of blind tasting and blind tasting a glass of wine means you sit down in front of it and you have to disregard all this other information that's designed to play to your sensory biases. You have no, you, all you have to go off is the glass of wine in front of you. You can't think about price. It's, you know, you don't know the price, right? But really blind tasting is about training yourself to kind of ignore context, to ignore things like price, like, you know, the reputation of the winemaker, I'd really try and stay true to this experience. And I was so fascinated in the art world. I, people who knew a lot about art began to basically inform me that the erudite way of looking at art is actually to pay attention to all the context, you know, mm -hmm. is really to, you know, that it's not just about looking at the piece of work. It's, you know, that cloud of names, context is really that cloud of names attached to it. So like, what museums have they showed at? What galleries have they showed at? Who bought their work? Who are they friends with? Like, what school did they go to? Um, and I can't say that that sit very well with me. I found that a, a bit unsettling. You know, here I wanted to really understand art and people were telling me, well, to understand art, you have to understand all the stuff around the art, but the art, well, you'll get to it. Yeah. <laughs> sort of what I felt like. And so I think this piece is interesting because we see the power of context, right? It's like if if these two artists were just standing naked on the side of a street, they'd probably get arrested, right? But because they're standing naked at the entrance to a museum, we call it art. And so I think Mandy's work also raises these questions. A lot of the what she's doing isn't in the context of a gallery. And so it becomes even more slippery to say, like, is it art? So, but yeah, I, I I think this is art. Amazing. So I'm going to put four and five together because I think context is the question for these final two I have mm. for you. So number four is a mm. piece that you reference in your book. It is uh, called Comedian. It's a 2019 artwork by Maurizio Catalan, and it sold for $120,000. And for those of you at home, this was, it is a banana and it is duct taped to a wall with a piece of duct tape at a kind of jaunty jaunty angle. So this, <laughs> this is number four. And number five is a picture I took in my kitchen this morning of a satsuma on the counter. It's not taped to anything, which is maybe why it's not art. But you know, mm. you've got some nice shadow. You can see me. You can see me holding the phone in the background. And you can see my paper towel roll, which is needing to be replaced shortly. But when I look at the banana on the wall and the satsuma on the counter, I question, are both of these things art? 
Is one of these things art? Are none of these things art? So Bianca, what is your definitive answer for these two pieces of work? <laughs> so, okay, well, I have to say first are, is the, you're not talking about the photograph being an art. You're talking about no, just correct. This, like, the actual, yeah. the actual Satsuma. Yes. This is not, a, this is, this is a screenshot from Google. So I don't yeah, think yeah, that's yeah. art. <laughs> so one thing that I found really fascinating as I, again, tried to wrestle with this, these questions that we're asking in the course of this game was that there is this you know, group of scientists who essentially argue that art is essential, right? That art is not just something that we began doing once we figured out how to live beyond age, you know, 20, but really something that has been critical to the survival of humans as a species. And if you think about, you know, we invented, you know, paint, I think, before the wheel. We certainly were painting and 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 drawing long before we learned how to write. You know, we painted, uh, I think, one of the earliest figurative paintings that was done, uh, which is a portrait of a warty pig. You know, it was done long before we figured out how to heal wounds. And so there's something very interesting about the fact that humans were drawn to creating paintings to, you know, mm-hmm. making these things that we now consider art. And art, and art is slippery, right? It's, it's hard. It's like, do we call our cave paintings art? It's hard to know, of course, the purpose that those served and how people at the time looked at them, unless we can somehow bring, you know, one of these cavemen that we find, you know, in a bog somewhere. Unless we that bring could, back that to, like, interview them. <laughs> yeah, right. There's still time. But, you know, these these scientists and these researchers that have looked at this have come up with various explanations for why art may have contributed to our survival of the species from why it may be this universal instinct that is a fundamental part of being human. And one of the ideas that I came to as as part of this was this idea that we should stop treating art as a thing, Mm. but rather treat it as a behavior. And so I think that a lot of us, when we talk about like, what is art? We start from the point of view of an object, right? A photograph, mm-hmm. a banana on a wall, a drawing on a piece of paper. And the argument um, this woman Ellen Desanayake makes is that really art is behavior. It's the product of what she calls making special. So art is anything that results from this sort of several kind of key behaviors where we, you know, we elevate something or we kind of codify it or, you know, we we make it special, we make it distinct, we set it apart. And so as part of her definition of art, art is everything from, you know, it could be an Instagram ass influencer, it could be a Super Bowl celebration, it could be a video game. And so I think that, you know, as for whether, I do think that the, this, you know, the comedian, the banana tape to wall is art. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, for your piece, it's hard to know without being in situ, I guess, and seeing it. But I think that like, I'm open to the possibility of it being art, depending on, you know, if it's just like a, a, you know, if you just kind of like happen to throw it there, but if you've sort of like maybe cleared a space on your counter and it's like, you've put it there as this object that we think about or contemplate, like I'm open to us having an artistic experience with it, right? Like I do think that there's something to be gained from looking at a painting in a museum, but I think there's also something to be gained from thoughtfully contemplating this Satsuma that you have stuck there. I mean, even as I'm looking at it now, you know, there's this amazing kind of like buttony effect going on. I think it's the, <laughs> you know, like, like I've never really taken the time to sit and think about a Satsuma. And I think that, you know, you certainly see, you know, in different cultures, again, different definitions of, of what is the kind of objects, the kind of experiences that 
we can have that give us the sort of amazing glitch in our brains that art delivers. And I think that's the other piece of this that I think is really critical is, you know, when we think about why art is important to our lives, there's research that shows that you know, when we look at the world, a lot of us, you know, when we look at what we're very unreliable seers, right? We have these filters of expectation that descend. Our brains are already ignoring a lot of information even before it gets to our brains. And art arguably introduces this glitch. It's this moment where it kind of snaps us out of what we're used to doing. It, it reminds us that the assumptions that we make about the world may be wrong. It kind of it keeps our brains from really overfitting to the data. It keeps them nimble, it keeps them flexible. And so art introduces this really beautiful glitch that kind of causes our brains to do a hiccup and say, wait, huh, you know, maybe, I don't know, like maybe in that first painting, right, that you get, like maybe, you know, clouds do seamlessly meld with a frozen lake. Maybe a banana stuck to a wall is art. Or in this case, you know, maybe, I don't know, like a satsuma can can make us reflect on color differently. And so, I'm I'm open to to having an artistic experience with this, just as I'm right. open to having an artistic experience with a hot dog cart or seats on the subway. I think it really just depends on the perspective that we bring to it and keeping an open mind. Well, I was open to eating that as a snack, so it was delicious. <laughs> and um, you Bianca, can do that too. I did. Well, I did, and that would have been a performance, okay. I think, actually. So, um, I mean, I just I really cannot say enough. Bianca, how much I loved your book. Get the picture, a mind-bending journey among the inspired artists and obsessive art fiends who taught me how to see is out now. It will make you think. It will make you laugh. It will have you staring at walls and putting satsumas on your counter. <laughs> I cannot wait for everybody to read it so I can talk to everyone about it. Bianca, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I mean, how did I do in the game? Did I win? Did I lose? You, I don't know. You won. I, you I won. guess we'll wait. Oh, all right, we'll see. We'll see. We'll let, we'll, we'll let the, we'll I let wanted you to say decide. that everything was art, and I feel like you did. So, <laughs> but it has, this is a part of what you do so well in this book is it has made me also look at things differently. And I think you're, you know, this idea that we can look at anything and try to figure out what it is by looking. It's just, it's really beautiful and necessary. So I'm grateful to you for writing this book and for coming on this podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to, to have had the chance to discuss with you. And thanks for the challenge. I love it. And uh, let me know when Lola has her opening. And that's a wrap on this episode. Thanks for tuning in to Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez Miranda. A very special shout out goes to my superstar team at Texture Sound for their support. Find out more about what I'm up to, my writing, events, and even the retreat I'm planning in Scotland at my website, aliciafmiranda.com or Instagram at aliciafmiranda. I'll talk to you next week.